Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. This episode is a 10-page podcast all about one of his short stories. Get ready to enjoy our remarks. Welcome back to Barks Remarks. We are back with a very special episode of what I call the 10-page podcast. Usually, we pick one or two of Bark's short 10-page stories to discuss, but today we're going to do something a little bit different and I think very special. We are going to talk about a group of no less than five stories from the Duckman's very early career. And, and I got a little more prologue, but uh, I've got a co-host that I'm very excited to have back. So I'll let him introduce himself. Hey, Mark. Warren Harmon back again, enjoying these uh, early comics so much. Really looking forward to our discussion and kind of tracking Carl Barks' early career. So excited. Yeah, this will be fun. Yeah, I I agree. I am very excited to touch on it. You know, when I when I started this podcast series, I was thinking long and hard about it. And I really was like, I've got to focus on those adventure stories, those longer stories, you know, that's my format. And and I really wanted to stick to it because there were just so many of the 10 pagers. But but I ultimately did decide that it made a lot of sense to be a little bit flexible so that I could get the the special 10-page podcast episodes in. And like I compromised where I was like, I'm going to stick with the spirit of what I'm doing by by numbering those longer episodes and labeling these others as the 10 page podcast. But but it means I didn't make that decision until a couple of months in. And so it means that I, I passed by all of these great old stories that really showed some of his like evolution. So, so I thought about it and I was like, oh, this is, this is the perfect compromise. You know, we're going to, we're going to talk about five really interesting stories here. None of which would really, none of them really have enough meat in them, I think, to merit their own episode, even a shared one. But, but what we're going to do today is talk about those stories, summarize them in a lot less detail than we usually would. And then we're going to um, think about what it says about the Duckman's early career um, and his evolution. So, so Warren, how do you feel in general, you know, about these early 10 pagers, the first part of his career? Right, right. And, and coming off of his partnership with Jack Hanna and finds Pirate Gold in, in 1942, where he kind of got a taste of the comic book industry and, and got to experience the art. As you said, this is, that was a great word, the evolution of the artist and the writer. And I think, why I think these stories are so important is that they pave the way to what he mastered later in his life. So you see a lot of that moments in these stories that say, hey, I remember seeing that kind of thing happen in Lost in the Andes or Luck of the North or those longer form stories. So here's a man who at the age of about 40 or 41, he's over 40. He's over 40. Yeah. And he's got this 23 year career left and this he's just getting started. And that just amazes me. And that's why I'm so excited, because I think as an individual and as a creative individual, I think he just wants to tell these stories. It, it's, it's really critically important that we understand where Carl Barks was. Yeah, I, I fully agree. 
Um, that's why I de- definitely think it's important to cover these stories as part of this podcast project. But but I also think they're very enjoyable and fun. And you made a great point there about this stage of his life. And I think about that a lot, right? Because like he, this is, I don't know how many careers in into yeah. his uh, into his life, but this is certainly not his first career. And this is a really big change to have made at this age, at this stage in his life. I would say this is his third career. You know, when he started out and he started with, uh, the, the Calgary eye opener and, and he had that publishing and editing experience with the incompetence in Minneapolis that he had to work with for those early years. Then he got fed up with that and went to uh, California, back to California, and, and and look and look what he did at Disney, uh, working in the story department and working on the Donald Duck shorts. And then he said, "Look, I'm going to move 75 miles with my first wife, Clara, to the small community where the weather's beautiful, the mountains are beautiful, and I'm going to set up my little freelance practice there and see what I can do." I mean, this is his third attempt, and he's now in his 40s, and I can kind of relate to that. I. I jumped from one long career in Minneapolis, and at the age of 42, I moved to Rochester and started something new. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I relate to, you know, I'm I'm at about that stage in my life right now, and I'm I'm looking at a little bit of a shift within my own career um, and doing doing the series. It's impossible not to think of that. And and it's I, I find it really inspiring, right? Because he obviously had a lot of his best work ahead of him still. Oh, extremely inspiring. And he had the talent, no question. But what I think was incredibly fortunate about this period for him, everything lined up, the stars aligned. He had people who trusted him. They didn't second guess him. We'll talk about the first story here and how um, the editor just said, wow, you know, here you go. You you can do this. And- yeah, they, they did give him a lot of latitude for these, right? But but I also get the impression that he was one of those people who really tried to like make his own luck. You know, he he put himself in the right place. He obviously built up a lot of goodwill as someone who was reliable um, working on those Disney shorts. And, and oh, yeah. these, you know, it should be said that these serve as a great bridge between the work that he did on those cartoon shorts, especially Donald Duck, and what he's going to go on to do with the Duck comics. But, you know, when he got that opportunity to do Pirate Gold with Jack Hanna, my read is that they really liked what they saw. Oh, yeah. And and they really must have liked the sales outcome. Um, oh, yes. And I think that probably gave him the confidence to think that he could he could do this. I, I understand he gave himself a little bit of an insurance policy where he he brought a bunch of uh, did he bring a bunch of chicken coops with yes, him? With he him. moved to San yeah, San with- Jacinto. Yeah, yeah, yep. He brought his chickens and his chicken coops and uh, like what they say with his wife. And uh, they kind of set up a little kind of like, okay, if this doesn't work out, I'll be a chicken farmer. (laughs) Here's the fallback. Well, and and he had previous careers doing other like very outdoor rural stuff, right? Didn't he do some like some sort of ranch hand or trapping or or not? Sure, in his 20s. Yeah, in his 20s and uh, growing up, I think he was always outdoors. um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm getting excited to talk about these. So, are, are you ready to launch into them, Warren? Do you any any other pregame? No, I, I think I think we'll just kind of talk about the evolution here, and it starts with Walt Disney Comics and Stories uh, number thirty-one. 
Yeah, let me let me list them off really quick. So we're going to be talking today about The Victory Garden from Walt Disney's Comics and Stories number 31 in April of 1943, followed by The Rabbit's Foot in the next issue, Walt Disney's Comics and Stories 32. Then we're going to be covering Salesman Donald in issue number 39, followed by The Duck in the Iron Pants in number 41, and finally The Mad Chemist, number 44. And um, let's uh, let's talk about why we're doing the ones we are, right? I, I think... I think that any project like this, we really have to cover the Victory Garden, right, Warren? Why is that? Well, the Victory Garden was Carl Barks's first opportunity to draw an original uh, 10-page story for Walt Disney's Comics and Stories. And and, uh, since he moved uh, away from Burbank and and the Disney Studios and kind of ended his career with Walt Disney as a staffer, he pulled, pulled all his stops and became a freelancer. He settled into this area where he could really uh, exercise his creative uh, skills, and um, they gave him this opportunity. Uh, It says in Donald Alt's book, and I want to give credit to the research here, that um, he believes the woman's name was Eleanor Packer, who was an editor, who uh, gave him that opportunity to draw this story. Now, this was not an original story either, though. I think the the thing to note here is that he was handed a script or an outline, and it was, uh, as he says, it was a rather indefinite sort of script. I worked it over, and it made more sense out of it. And it was one of the things that they uh, were kind of testing Karl Marx here in his ability to uh, come up with something that would captivate and uh, get the uh, editors at Western uh, Printing excited. Yeah, I, I think you've got it right. He, um, the bit that I have that Jeffrey Blum had written in their curating of the graphic novel that I read most of these in, um, just notes that you know he was allowed to strengthen what he thought needed punching up, but but that he focused most of his effort on the art. So He did, and the art is fantastic. It even shows, in my opinion, it shows an evolution from Fine's Pirate Gold and uh, uh, of this expressive Donald Duck that we see today. I think it's closer to what, what he ended up with. I think he had a, a great opportunity to to really work on the art on this story. So, right. yeah, let's let's talk about the Victory Garden. Should we start there? Yeah, absolutely. We're yeah. going to we're going to go chronologically, so um okay. So so go ahead Warren tell us um tell us about the main action. Uh, give us a good summary of the Victory Garden. Yeah, it's important to note that Victory Gardens were real popular at the height of World War II in in America, United Kingdom, Australia, other parts of the world, Canada, and uh these were um gardens that um citizens of the countries were encouraged to grow to help the war effort, to grow their own food. But what I found fascinating about it was it was a spirit builder. It was a morale builder for the citizens uh, during this incredibly horrible war. And and uh, it was an opportunity to get out and plant community gardens in vacant lots and in backyards. And so the, the story, The Victory Garden, opens with Donald and his nephews, um, Real, real quick, Warren. I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt, but oh, no. that that's that's important. I appreciate you defining like what a victory garden is, right? Because it's presented in this story as something that every reader would would know about. Did you know what a victory garden was before you re- originally read this story? I did. My my mom was ten years old in 1943, and she remembers planting her victory garden in that's, Minneapolis. That's cool. I. 
I had no idea what a victory garden was. I learned about it literally from this comic, probably at about the age of 10 years old. Um, And and I had to, I I can't remember if I asked someone or if I looked it up pre-Google, but I, I did not know because there's no real direct reference in the story to war, right? They just, they're just talking about, we're going to start up a victory garden. Yeah. Um, and, and it really interests me that you don't really see them in other pop culture. Like, no, you don't really see them in other comics. Uh, you, you rarely see them referenced in movies of the time. Right. Um, it was a, an effort that maybe was grassroots. Maybe it started. I don't know if the government encouraged it. I th- probably did. Oh, I, I think but, there was a big, you know, propaganda yeah. effort yeah. to, to yeah. get them. And, and we, we know that there was a lot of um, Donald Duck propaganda material made too. So I, I have to think that this is probably something that uh, maybe got reworked out of some of that because, you know, I, I wanted Donald, to Duck, on that. Donald yeah. Duck really went to bat for the war effort. He did. Uh, a good friend of mine just sold his entire Donald Duck uh, war collection uh, at Heritage Auctions, and he lives in Minneapolis. And uh, anyway, Donald Duck, I think the other part of this is that we're at the height of World War II. Um, but you made the point, and it was the right point, that, that Donald Duck became sort of the, the visual symbol of the war for Disney as Walt Disney entered the war effort. And I'm going to say whether I'm right or wrong or whatever, I'm going to say that Donald Duck surpassed Mickey Mouse in popularity during these years in terms of, you know, in the comics, in the short cartoons. Popular uh, consciousness. No arguments here. Absolutely. That's what excited me. Probably what got me excited about collecting Donald Duck. So yeah, the story begins with Donald and the boys uh, wanting to plant a victory garden. And uh, what I really love is that as they begin planting this victory garden in earnest, you see these three crows sitting up on the on the line and um, immediately it reminded me of the of the crows in the movie Dumbo that was premiered two years earlier. Um, they're sassy, they're kind of commenting, the magpies. He, I have a feeling Carl Barks was inspired by the crows from Dumbo. And as they are excited about seeing this victory garden go, they, uh, they see food on their table and so they uh, leap off the pole and start getting uh, eating the food. Donald gets fed up with it and calls them saboteurs and throws things at them and and uh that's a great bit right yeah it's a great saboteur because (laughs) because they're like sabotaging his his war effort exactly exactly and who knows if the crows are symbolic in any way to the uh to the axis i doubt it but uh but it's uh, they're sort of the troublemakers here there are there are three of them yeah (laughs) yeah so the the overarching theme here is donald's attempt to plant a victory garden every chance he gets gets thwarted and so he he tries it in his yard he goes to a vacant lot uh in the neighborhood uh beautifully i just have to point out at the uh what is it the corner of faith and hope i love that i love that and then he uh he does everything to try to deceive these crows even dress up uh, in a woman's costume and (laughs) it doesn't fool them and uh, so every attempt, whether it's the crows or the boys playing football on the garden he planted in the vacant lot, he just he just gives up. And it I love the ending when uh, the boys and conveniently go to the seed store and find invisible seeds, and they thwart the crows by opening the bag and there's nothing there. And uh, they present it to Donald in his bed while he's uh, recovering from his football uh, catastrophe. He throws the bag against the wall, and the next morning, voila, 
the victory garden is growing in his bedroom. Really fun. That that, that was a great synopsis, Warren. This is a really interesting story to start with, right? Because some some parts of this really do feel like it's right out of the cartoon you know that especially that element with the like invisible seeds that feels like something that would have happened in one of the cartoons where they're like this is going to be fun slapstick and silly and we don't care why they're invisible we're not going to explain that they're just they're so small that they're they might as well no there's invisible seeds give donald the invisible seeds we like that visual of the vegetables growing out of his hardwood floors. Yeah, well, again, uh, you have to remember Carl Barks is coming off his uh, story ideas at the animation studio. So he 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 wrote this like a cartoon, and, and this easily could have been a cartoon, as you said. In fact, uh, Carl Barks would take, because there were so few panels in, in these uh, three-row comics, there's three rows here, That's right. and there are 10 pages, he would take each panel and put them up on the wall of his home as a storyboard, like the motion, like the movies, and he would replace them and move them around and redraw them. And that's how he saw it, because that's what he was trained to do at Disney. Yeah. I thought that was fabulous because it, it has the feel of that cartoon. But when he turned the story in, they loved it. No edits. I mean, it was you sold us, Mr. Barks. <laughs> yeah. And, and this was like so crucial for him. Right. This was like showing yeah. showing that he can do this mostly on his own. Now, I'm, I'm, I have no doubt they trusted his story writing, but they're like, we've got this existing story. Let's see what you can do with it art wise. I, I like that element where we see the little crow language. This is something we don't get too, <laughs> too much of, right? Where right. Um, we covered another story, Pixelated Parrot, where we see translated we see the- from parrotese. Here we, we see these crows or, or magpies or whatever chattering away like, um, like human characters. Right, right. And that makes it so appealing to certainly the audiences that are reading this and gives it an element of fun. And um, something else notable in a lot of these is they feel, because they're in the early 40s, they're going to feel much more out of time compared to a lot of his later stories. Like a lot of them will have dated elements, but this one to me, you know, you see those old time football helmets, just the very concept of the victory garden but but yeah this one feels dated in a way that um that i find very charming what do you think think of his early art his early character design here oh i love it it it, the angry donald and the throwing donald and the the jumping and leaping and and shouting donald is classic It, it it has that comic element in the very last page of him throwing the bag of seed at the wall look at his pose there out of the bed he's just everything and then and then the last panel is a classic last shot in a cartoon he's looking right at the camera every character that's been in the story is in the story in the panel and uh, the, the crows have the last word. I think it's just a beautiful ending to a funny kind of romp, like you said, a slapstick romp. And that's what, what they were doing here. Yeah, that, that's a good summation of that end panel. To me, it feels very abrupt. But as you, as you point out, it is like a cartoon ending. Awesome. Good, yeah. good stuff. We're, let's, uh, let's get off to the races, Warren, because we got, we got a lot of story to talk about here. So, you know, we've we've just covered his very first 10-page story that he was entrusted to do, um, that he was given the chance to adapt. We're going to transition now to the first completely independent story that he did. No, no co-artist, no written source material. We're going to get The Rabbit's Foot, which is a Karl Barks joint drawn and, and written. 
And this is a story about that old trope of the lucky rabbit's foot, right? The idea that um, that it's a little luck token, a good luck charm. And, you know, this is kind of before Barks is going to have the nephew, eh, you know, Barks, Barks is going to make the nephews be what he wants them to be. Sometimes they're right. um, very rational, but sometimes they're, they're very childlike in their love for this kind of belief, right? I, I, I have belief. I believe in it. It's that sort of like when you wish upon a star element that Disney, I think in general, really likes, right? Rewarding the, the faith of kids and, and the pure hearted. So th- this is a story where the kids are going to present to Donald uh, this token that they just got from an old Indian, which is an old trope that it hasn't aged well, but it was very, very commonplace. If you needed something mystical, um, you get it from an old Indian back at that time. And Donald is going to be presented as like the very rational foil in this one who doesn't believe in good luck, but but he is going to overdo it, right? And it's going to make him act in a very rash way because the the gist of this story is that Donald is going to set out to prove that their rabbit's foot does not bring them luck. He is going to let them put themselves in all kinds of situations that are inadvisable, that are dangerous, that uh, CPS would not approve of. But, That's right. Um, but, but every time the nephews are going to walk away unscathed, you know, they, they're going to cross a rickety bridge um, safely and, and he's going he's gonna to poo-poo it as be able to hold up an elephant. And of course it's going to collapse under his weight. They're going to use it to, to get a free ride on a little carnival ride, proving him wrong. And then ultimately this story is going to come to its conclusion with something that we'll see in one of the Donald Duck cartoons, an escaped gorilla. Mm -hmm. Do do you remember that? I don't know the name of the cartoon, but I do know that there was, uh, yeah, there was an animated cartoon uh, that uh, featured the gorilla. Yeah. yeah. And, and, the, and the gorilla in this that, that escapes from the zoo is like terrifying, right? Like it's, oh, yeah. it's drawn in a very, very frightening way, as was the one in the cartoon. And I didn't fact check this, but I think that cartoon must have come out first. I believe it did. And, and remember the, uh, the whole cinema industry was taken over in 1933 10 years earlier by king kong and and you've got this fascination with apes and and right. in, with the tarzan movies so i think barks just again just really smart just knew what would attract the viewers and the readers yeah that that's a really good point right the the country the world the pop culture was like gorilla crazy um mighty joe young son of kong mighty joe young yep yeah, uh, a quick, you know, peruse of Google tells me that mountain gorillas weren't really discovered by the outside world until 1902. Wow. It, it really struck the popular imagination for decades there. So, so anyway, the, the boys end up using this rabbit's foot to avoid harm. Um, and then Donald will get the bright idea that he's going to capture subdue this gorilla with the charm of the rabbit's foot, the luck of the rabbit's foot. Um, and, and he ignores their warnings that commandeering their rabbit's foot is actually going to bring him bad luck. And, and so he ends, we end this story with him narrowly escaping 
being killed by the gorilla, uh, being rescued by some firefighters. And, uh, and, and we get a, a good old corporal punishment gag at the end where he's, yep. you know, annoyed at the nephews, threatens to um, give them the licking of their lives and uh, accidentally injures himself, bringing the, the strap <laughs> he inadvertently <laughs> injures himself and, and ends up in the hospital in a full body cast. Great story. I, I, I have to point out uh, a couple of things that I thought of while watching this. I'm going, wow, this is this is like, what, five years, six years before Gladstone Gander? And and mm-hmm. we're, we're playing with that luck theme and we're having yeah. fun with it with the rabbit's foot and the three nephews and how determined they are. And how their luck, if you think about it from the bridge and from the the ride at the at the carnival, it all mirrors the kind of luck Gladstone would have. And uh, it must have been a successful trope to uh, to have Barks continue that on with the character. Yeah, totally. He's um, he, he's preoccupied by luck even early on. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to remark again just how like terrifying the gorilla looks. And lots of panels that feature the gorilla close-ups. Um, I love the panel in this one that uh, where he's imagining himself being lauded as a hero uh, in the newspaper. It says, heroic duck subdues gorilla. And the subheading is, not brave, just lucky, says modest hero. <laughs> I love it. And look at his eyes in that, too. I mean, um, that's a great panel. On that same page is one of my most the most creative panels, and that's where he's uh, shaking the tree branch. The gorilla is, and and Donald's uh, word balloons uh, match every shake of the limb. I thought that was really clever. Right, right. Some great art in there. You know, I like how we just Warren talked about uh, our specific favorite panels from that one because that's going to be the way to do this. Um, did you have any favorites that we should, in retrospective, have highlighted in the Victory Garden? Oh, I, I think the uh, the Victory Garden. Uh, I, I love I love the closing panel. I think uh, on the Victory Garden on the second page is probably one of my favorite p- poses for Donald, as he says, "Get out of here, you saboteurs." I think that's probably one of my favorite panels. That yeah. just shows Donald Duck at his full frustrated, angry self. How about you? Yeah. I, I I agree with you. Um, the last one is an easy call. Um, the, the one where the nephews peg him with the slingshots, pretty great too. <laughs> yeah, I think the, uh, the, uh, the artwork is just getting better and better here. And as he's given free independence on the rabbit's foot story, um, he's, and I, I really get the sense that Carl Barks has these stories up here and he's just wanting to tell them. So I really believe, and he said it in one of these interviews that he never liked working on two stories at the same time. He had to finish one before he began the next one. And so I think he was one of these tireless workers. I don't think it was a nine to five job. It was while he was sleeping, while he was walking, while he was whatever. He came out and he had these ideas. Yeah, for sure. Um, All right. I think we're ready to go on to Salesman Donald. So Mark, I think a third really important story in this series that we're doing is Salesman Donald. Uh, from Walt Disney Comics and Stories number 39 in November of 43. I, the reason is, there are many reasons, um, and it, it's sort of the antithesis of the rabbit's foot story. And because we see the boys needing Donald now to go do their thing, and uh, the boys are, and, and this is really about Donald bragging about being the best salesman ever. And he is uh, greeting the nephews who, who's 
whole goal here is to raise enough money to buy a um, uh, an express wagon, but it's probably just a, a a boy's wagon. Yeah, I'm just picturing a classic radio flyer wagon, but I didn't. There look you go. On that. Yeah, so they're out to sell egg beaters, uh, and they've they've tried, and Donald says, "I can do it. I can sell them to the entire neighborhood. I'll sell out." And so, kind of counter to Donald's success and luck in the past. I mean, it, where he's always struggling, he really is successful in this story, and he's out selling these egg beaters to the most unlikely people in his neighborhood. And there's some great art here. The nephews are getting frustrated with his his kind of luck now, you know. And uh, and I love this because there's so many things happening in this story. You, you meet some really interesting characters. Uh, Donald's persistence and his joy with his incredible skill as a salesman is, is seen on almost every page here until you go, something's got to happen here. And so they get to the last egg beater and this little shack in their neighborhood where they uh, they meet this feisty hermit who you don't see right away, but you hear right away. And he's kind of this gleeful, laughing little prankster is all I can come up with. And, and, uh, and that's a joy just to watch Donald try to foil him through the door. And, uh, and then, of course, we end up uh, seeing him at the end of the story where Donald eventually is successful and sells the hermit the egg beater and uh the hermit just breaks down and just says okay i'll buy it <laughs> but had fun doing it i just think it's a fun uh, one of my early memories a fun story filled with tons of gags lots of great artwork um the introduction of quirky characters like the hermit started here so yeah that's uh that's Salesman Donald, I think, is just a lot of fun. How about you? Um, Warren, I'm I'm so glad that you picked this one for, for a couple of reasons. This this was your choice. Um, you know, I asked you to throw in another that you really cared about in this era that we're talking about, this 40, 43, right? 43. Yeah, we're still in 43 here. here. Yep, yep. And and I wanted to limit this from 43 to 45. This is a new experience for me because. I had never read this one. Okay. I, I think I've read a good 95% of his output. I've, I've missed a couple of dozen here and there. Um, but this is my first time talking wow. about a story on the podcast that I, I read the previous day. And this one was so much fun. Um, <laughs> and and it's so tight. And I, I loved The Hermit, right? It, it's it's the genesis of these other goofy characters that Donald's going to try to sell to in like Land of the Totem Poles yep. and um, at least a couple of others. Right. Um, it, it's, it's the idea of trying to sell a gadget that you don't need to someone like that is, is inherently funny. Right. And then, and then the tight setup he does where Donald vows at the very beginning to sell only to people on his block gives him that limitation, right? That sets up why he's going to be so dogged about trying to sell a, an egg beater to, to a hermit that just hates people, doesn't cook for himself. I think it references he only eats like roots and herbs or something. I think um, he's a vegetarian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the it's, it's a good presager to all of the little like, over-the-top battles of will and battles of wits that 
he's going to have Donald go into against Gladstone, against neighbor Jones, um, right. sometimes against Scrooge and, and other people. It's, it's like, it feels like the, the birth of all of those. I'm glad so, you said that because I, I agree with that. And I think it's also this battle of, of wits and will with his nephews. I mean, if you think about it, he's trying to up one up his nephews in here. They've gone through the neighborhood. They need the money. And he goes, I'll sell them to the same people you tried. I mean, he's 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 childish, but he's also so confident that he can do this. This is the the Donald we see grow out of this story here. And um, we're still in 43. We're still in the same first year. I, I love the um, I love the disgust that they give him when he like flatters and flirts the, <laughs> the housewife at the very beginning of it. Yeah, you love the art on that page too. When his his eyes are lifted up, and he goes, "Well, I'm afraid I, uh, you won't be interested in the humble kitchen gadget I'm selling. Your hands are too delicate for beating eggs." <laughs> right. Yeah, he's so he just conniving. And and we don't really get that. That's a characterization that he's gonna um he's gonna abandon. But but it's a fun little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Any any other any anything else you want to highlight from this this really really cool early story i'm so glad that you picked this one. Oh, thanks and i and i, th I think one of the early uh, examples of a repeated art technique that he used here and he may have used it a few times before was the silhouettes uh, mm -hmm. when the boys and he, and donald are walking down the street um and and it's just a it's a great way to break up the art in the story um the little side panels and and just the little just the visual gags are just great when the hermit shoots ink at him through the the keyhole um that little very interesting panel of donald just looking at the camera and looking straight ahead rather and when he says that's an insult you don't see many panels like that yeah definitely so, feels like very cartoon influenced yep so i, I think barks had a, just a blast with this one with all the gags definitely i've got to i've got to mention how great the bit with the different doors is yeah, too. The, the rubber the door, the, <laughs> the layer of doors. To, he has all these trick doors that can only yeah, have yeah. been designed for, for this kind of battle, right? So, and and he kind of gives it away at the end that he's like annoyed that he lost, but it's the most fun that the hermits ever had. So, so he's clearly been waiting for for this kind of um, test of of wits to come along. What do you think of the hermit? Oh, oh, he's hilarious. He, um, his, his wild over the top bushiness. Barks does that with like Herman the Hermit in another story. Um, I, I didn't know there was a precursor to him. So he, mm -hmm. he's, he's awesome. He's hilarious. And I think what you like about him, what, what finds him charming is that he's constantly giggling and he's constantly laughing as if he's just enjoying this. And he didn't mind buying the egg beater because he had fun. It, to me, that just it just makes the story that much more pleasing. And of course, <laughs> they're asking for more money at the end. And Donald uh, again is after them this time with a with a branch. Fun oh yeah, story. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, and and you know it made me think of uh, how much the early and mid twentieth century did this thing too, where like kids <laughs> kids got on the hook for these kinds of like low grade salesman jobs all the time. Right. Looking through the old Dell and Gold Key um, comics, there are all these schemes to get kids to sell seeds and uh, and and other stuff for prizes, and they inevitably resulted in parents having to buy their stock off them. 
That's right. All right. So um, rolling along, we are at um, my favorite of of the bunch of them, uh, which is the duck in the iron pants. And um, th- this is such a highlight to me of of his early era comics. I read most of these stories in Gladstone's compendium, their their album that collected a bunch of them. And they gave this one the title. It's called The Duck in the Iron Pants. They um, they put Bark's great oil. Is this an oil or a litho? Oh, it, it, it was an oil first, and then became a litho. I have a, I have the small litho. It's a smaller litho. It's just great with the, the nephew torching Donald. Oh um, yeah, the, just just a wonderful image, a wonderful painting of yes. of Donald attacking the boys' snow fort in full suit of armor. Um, he doesn't get to do a lot of these more gag based oils you know a lot of them are more like the adventure or the kind of slice of life duckberg stories um i can only think of like this and truant officer donald um i'm sure there's a couple others but this one kind of stands apart this is such a great great painting and but anyway the story is is awesome this is one of the best donald versus the nephews 10 pagers i i think ever despite being from this very, very early period, right? It has the nephews playing outside, having some good old-fashioned wholesome snow fun. Donald decides to walk by them. He's clearly goading them. He's clearly setting them up to um, get in, in this kind of battle with them because he he's going to engage in that that trope, which doesn't exist any longer. But I think the idea in the uh, the middle of the 20th century was that a man wearing a top hat was just begging to have it knocked off by a snowball. <laughs> so so Donald instigates this big snow war with the nephews by walking by them in a top hat, and he's sabotaged it. He's uh, affixed it with an elastic band, and he's stationed a big snowball. Um, which he uses to cave in the trench that they're in. Um, Warren, did that did that bit remind you uncomfortably of of the trench warfare from just a couple years, a couple decades or, or before this? I didn't see that. That's an interesting take on it, though, with the boys in the trench and getting uh, bombed, if you will. But yeah, right. I mean, we're we're only twenty years away from World War One, and I only thought about it this time. Okay. But um, but th- this escalates, and the nephews decide they have to answer back. So they're going to build this cool snow fort. Um, and when Donald comes back, trying the same trick, you know, right. which which he should know better, um, they <laughs> escalate things by breaking an egg in his top hat, which which sets him off, and he invades their snow fort. Um, but but they've had all this time to prepare now, and so they are hitting him with all these great snow tricks um, that really fired my imagination as as a kid. You know, I see this little snowball Gatling gun that they're attacking him with, or this little this little ricochet bit, or uh, what do you what do you call the little weapon that they use? That's um, 
two heavy objects tethered to a line. There's a name oh, for it. I can't remember. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Yeah, word finding errors. But um, you know, they they wrap him with a couple of snowballs around a, a line, and they they get him good. Um, and they they realize that they may have overshot right because he heads into his workshop with a vengeance, and we've got these. <laughs> We've got these like actions where the nephews are preparing their defenses, shoring up their snow fort. Um, and, and then Donald is es- doing some unseen escalating. And when he finally emerges, it is such an amazing panel, Warren. He is wearing a suit of armor that he's blacksmithed up in his workshop. It it. It's suited for a duck. It's got his bill. He's got, um, it's, you know, it fits his bill. He's holding a sword um, and he comes out ready to invade, (laughs) invade them. Um, And, and they're just trying every trick that they've got to repel him, but because he's armored, um, they, they can't stop him and they they start to throw tools and rocks at him and eventually he's able to uh, approach their wall and slice a and, and slice a square out of it with his sword. And I love the word balloon where he is just going so over the top threatening. Yeah. He, he calls out. Nothing can save you from me. I am invincible. I am doom itself. (laughs) This one is a masterpiece. They finally resort to a little bit of cartoon logic where they've got this flamethrower, a trio of brothers with with a flamethrower, yes, um, that they've used to kind of melt and then solidify the walls of their fort and they get one of them gets the bright idea to burrow in the snow behind donald and ultimately heats him heats his suit of armor up um you know and and do they do manage to heat it up enough to repel him and and it concludes with donald tending to his wounds on a large block of ice uh, as the nephews are getting ready to hole up for the winter and they've they've turned the suit of armor into a radiator stove and are roasting <laughs> roasting wieners. Uh, Warren, th- this is such a great bit of of wish fulfillment and and um, kid empowerment and Donald versus the nephews slapstick violence. I, I don't mean to, I, I've, I'm bigfooting here. I'm talking too much about this one, but, but this, this is like the story that I was like, oh, I, I gotta talk about some of these classic ones because I don't want to miss talking about the duck in the iron pants. Well, I like this story a lot and I thank you for, for your passion about it. Um, I remember this one as well, not as well as, as uh, salesman Donald, but I, I, I do have the lithograph that to me just makes me laugh every time I walk by it in my room and look at it. And just, I just love it. You said it, it, it's classic Donald versus the nephews. What I really like what Barks is doing here is that first reveal of the duck armor. It, it's a laugh out loud panel. I mean, and the duck in the armor says very little. He just keeps storming the castle. And, and when I, there's a couple of humorous elements I love. He not only fashioned this out of the gem stove company where he got the armor from, 
but he put a little plume on his hat on his oh, yeah. armor i mean this he went over the top i mean it's but great art great characterization inventive but that those panels when he's introduced with the snort all the way through to that declaration of I am doom itself. He doesn't say much at all. In fact, I think he just says one little line as he's coming out. He goes, Ho, varlets, thinketh thy puny buffoonery can stop me now. That's what cracked me up so much about this story. Yeah, yeah, well said. And and you're right about that awesome touch where you can see the logo of the uh, stove company <laughs> on that he's, he's like turned in a boiler or something into it. Yeah, a little, little foreshadowing there too to the last panel. Right. And, and you're right. He's just like this, this unstoppable, like sort of juggernaut menacing, slowly menacing his way towards them. Yeah. Yeah. This one's a ton of fun. It looks like we are ready to talk about our last one. So I'm, I'm glad to close out this one by talking about the mad chemist. I, I think this one is really, really interesting and really fun. And I remember reading about it in um, a issue that Gladstone put out where they paired it with the sunken yacht because they both had like these little elements where the um there was a little bit of like real life that kind of bleeded and bled into it so uh, you know I'll let I'll let you summarize the story here and then I'll kind of talk about the little feature that they'd published in that comic on it yeah yeah and again um the this particular one Mark, I believe, comes from Walt Disney Comics and Stories number 44. Yeah, that's the one. And what I like about this story, uh, and it, again, this is a newer one to me, but when I read it, um, I just love the way, again, the nephews and Donald play off each other. Anyway, we see the nephews, and they're they're playing in their um, their chemistry set, and, and Donald uh, is really interested in what they're doing. Um and says, hey, you ought to, he, he, he takes some of the chemicals and he just says, you ought to just add this. And they, they, they warn him, no, be careful. Something horrible could happen. It could blow up. And he goes, ah, fooey. And so he pours it in the cylinder bowl that the chemicals are bubbling in, flies up in the air, hits Donald on the head. And, and all of a sudden, Donald has this incredible transformation into a brilliant chemist. He, he looks the same. He's walking kind of dazed. He's got a huge uh, bump on his head. Um, but he starts talking very in very scientific kind of funny terms. And he says, we've got to um, got to t take me seriously here. I'm going to concoct something. And he says, I'm going to be the mightiest chemist in the universe. So he creates this concoction that he proudly announces as duck mite. Yeah. Duck mite is a, an explosive chemical that he uh, has has uh, developed, but it's dangerous. So we have to drive far away from Duckburg to experiment with it. So the boys say, well, why don't we just do it here in the backyard? No, no, it's too dangerous. So they go out, and but they get outside of Duckburg, and they ideally over a cliff, and uh, Donald begins dropping these bottles of duck mite over this 1,000-foot-high cliff and says, be careful, it'll explode. Well, he does this over and over again at different sizes, and nothing happens. So he goes down to the bottom, lights a match, looks in there, and then it just blows up. But instead of being hurt, he's proud that he has uh, created this incredible potion. And so um, they go back off, and they uh, pour a little bit of this in the car for gas, and it speeds down the road. Uh, they all say goodbye, cruel world, which is just fun. So after they're, they're splashing the water from 
the car that with the with the duck mite in it uh, goes into the water. Donald is now absolutely convinced that he can send a rocket to the moon. Well, the boys get concerned and they go see a doctor called U Dr. U Quirk, a brain expert, and he basically explains to uh, the doctor that they're worried that this uh, duck mite is going to cause more problems and that he's built a rocket ship to fly to the moon. So uh, the doctor just basically gives up and says, so what? He can't harm any anything there. So they go home. Donald's got the rocket ship built. So the boys show up and Donald is already in his rocket and he's ready to take off and he he roars off. Uh, the, the boys try lassoing him to stay put, but he goes all the way into space. He goes all the way and he's extremely startled now. He goes around the moon and he heads right back to Earth and he crashes believe it or not, in his own backyard. And when he is told that he has done this incredible achievement, he doesn't believe it. I think his 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 little amnesia or his little personality shift to the mad, the mad chemist comes back around and he says, I can't believe it went around the, the moon. And everybody's proud of this accomplishment. And they ask him if he could mix up some more duck mite. And now he doesn't even know what duck mite is. Right. So, um, right. that's, uh, that's the kind of the ending to the story there. Yeah, it's a perfect one. One of those first sort of etch-a-sketch stories where there's something that's like really over the top. He literally leaves Earth um, and then Barks is going to have to kind of reset it back to the status quo. I really like this one. This one stood out to me because it feels like the art, it's, it's still very early, but the art feels like it's really starting to mature by now in this it one. Is. Yeah, I agree. Race to and, the Moon. I mean, there's other stories that come later that pick up on this great early artwork. Yeah. And this one, you know, it, it's kind of evocative of the Firebug, um, which is another mm. kind of early, not quite as early, I think, but early-ish favorite of mine where he gets some kind of insult to the head that changes his personality. Um, but I really like the look that he's given when, when he's kind of in this other guise as the mad chemist. This one's really cool too, that sort of escalation of the action where they're driving out to ever increasing vacant lots um, until they just get, get out deep into the wilderness to, right. to, to blow up his weapon. And it's hard not to think for me about the Manhattan Project, right? This one feels like such an allegory um, because... What are we in with this one? Is this 1944? Where are we in in uh, relationship with uh, so Donald so this Duck one has, came out in May of 1944. That's the date on Wikipedia, and mm -hmm. the atom bomb, I'm, the giveaway. Well, uh, the the real one, um, Fat Man. Oh. Uh, that that was detonated in 45. So yeah, a year but, later, but, but everyone. Like this was something that everyone kind of knew was going on, but yeah. but like, th there was clearly this race right going on. No one civilians didn't know the specifics of it, but they right. had an idea that both sides were working on these um, these super weapons. So this was on everyone's mind, uh, and and there's this like really kind of frightening undertone with this one. I think. Oh, no question about it. Yeah, some evil undertone. I mean, Oppenheim was working on the atom bomb for us. Is that correct? At yes. The time. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. And this one has also this really interesting, like, sort of true life component of it. 
I don't fully understand it, but apparently some of the chemistry work that Barks depicted at the beginning of this actually was like pretty realistic and and was okay. was ahead of its time. You can find a couple of articles online about this um, kind of under the, the heading of did Donald Duck accidentally use methylene in a comic before it was discovered? The, the studio got this article from these readers, these scientists who were also big fans of the mm. duck comics that were, uh, I'll just read, read this um, verbatim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they got this letter from a doctor from Joseph B. Lambert of the California Institute of Technology. He, he's pointing out a, a reference in a technical article called the spin states of carbines. And he says that despite the recent extensive interest in methylene chemistry, much additional study is required among experiments which have not to our knowledge been carried out as yet is one of a most intriguing nature suggested in the literature of no less than 19 years ago. And the footnote in that technical paper directed readers to issue 44 of Walt Disney's comics and stories. Um, and and he, he goes on to say that Donald's reference to CH2 in panel 2.1 was years ahead of its time. Uh, as the existence ah. of that elusive chemical had not been, that chemical intermediate had not been proven as of 1944. This is like that very wry academic language that that uh, scientists or, or scholars use when they're kind of being a little bit on the nose, a little bit funny. The inclusion of this footnote sure. in a quite scholarly article um, stemmed from the discovery that Dr. Gaspar and I share a mutual and independently long-standing esteem for the adventures of Donald Duck. Uh, it was <laughs> it. it was Dr. Gaspar who rediscovered this early mention of carbine. So uh, th there's there's a lot of reasons to appreciate this one. Um, I think it's I do think it's one of the best of the early stories, but um, but I also think that 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 little technical detail merits highlighting here too oh that that's great that thank you for sharing that i was unaware of that but it, it shows that donald duck's popularity is spread across so many different generations and different different professions right and i also like the notion that that we're not the only um grown men here who who still like duck comics right this this was uh, right. several decades ago and these these very esteemed scientists so i i very like fun. that any, any other comments on uh, this one, The Mad Chemist, Warren? Well, again, it was a newer story for me. Um, looking at it um, in the issue that I have, um, I'm just I'm taken by the artwork and how much more Barks is experimenting with outside of this world and looking at the moon, what the moon might look like. Just so many great little little gags. Yeah, I'm going to have to dig into this one a little bit more. And Yeah, this one's a lot of fun. So... Um, Warren, I, I want to synthesize just a little bit. We can kind of wrap things up by, by talking about, by kind of reflecting on this period. I love going back and looking at these. I still think they're Barks in his most formative time. I mean, I mean, he's, he's becoming the storyteller and artist that he, he's, he's good. He's not great yet, but he's, he's good and he knows it. And the, again, I just think it's wonderful how much freedom the editors gave him to do these. Yeah, he's really getting some great confidence from doing these. And like, it was kind of, it was really unique what he got to do, right? Like the the Disney comics, um, 
the, the duck stories that he was doing them, right? Like, I don't think right. there were other creators around this time who were being given this opportunity. Am I, am I right? For the comics? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, he was it. That was it at the time. I, I think there we had the different cover artists. Often but, they were the, like, no, the editors. Up until issue number 31, The Victory Garden, they were reprinting newspaper com uh, comic strips and they ran, they ran out. They, they said, we're done. We have to do something else. And that, that desperation to find new content for this Walt Disney Comics and Stories format, this monthly format, this was a great career starter for, for uh, Carl Barks because they couldn't reprint any more newspaper strips. He he really was Disney Comics for for a long time. Oh. I mean, we had those oh, newspaper twenty three year career. Yeah, yeah. We, we had those newspaper classics. Um, we had the great Gottfredson Mickey Mouse comics that'll be collected over and over. Mm -hmm. The the like Talia Ferro, um mm -hmm. strips and and other those strips. Those are the uh, art Talia Ferro, the uh, the comic strips, right? Right. But he kept Walt Disney's comics and stories going. He set the templates, mm -hmm. the, the series, he was writing them monthly for, for so long that it's safe to say that like I, the, the comics line wouldn't have likely gone on and become as enduring without him, um, oh, let alone the Donald Duck line, you know, that's going to get spun off. And then Uncle Scrooge, right, that's going to become his, his own his own it, it might as well have been called Carl Barks Uncle Scrooge because it wasn't a monthly title at first no not, like, not to begin with and all the four color long form stories I mean we know that Victory the Victory Garden came in early 43 shortly after finds pirate gold give him his break but when did the mummy's ring uh, the next long form story. When was that published? That that was September of forty three. So he gets to do okay. about a half dozen of okay. the um, of the ten pagers uh, before he gets to do that. That one, of course, is very significant as his first independent full length adventure story. Right. And so Disney had him doing the full length stories uh, to to fall into the four color format to do those. He did these monthly. Um, no, he's very productive. He was a busy artist and a busy writer. To be given all the freedom to tell all of these stories that he wanted to tell is a great benefit for the readers and for, for you and me. Even if he himself didn't feel as free sometimes to tell some of the stories that he liked. We, we didn't cover um, Lifeguard Days is in this early period. And that's the one where he was forced to, to reduce the bosom of a, of a duck bathing beauty character right. one of his early bouts of of being censored uh we didn't cover Is that a human for, figure it, it's a it's a duck so it's oh, like it's a duck okay it's a duck with bosom so it's pretty it's a little bit disturbing but ultimately he did have to like flatten reduce her her chest to get past the editors um we didn't get to That's talk true. about neighbor good neighbors right we've got our first iteration of like neighbor jones and he, he uses a mm -hmm. couple different versions of neighbor jones mm -hmm. so the, mm -hmm. these were never like as a kid i didn't like these as much um because they felt very primitive i didn't really have a, an appreciation of his his career arc and then also you know i didn't read them in that kind of order or anything naturally i i did i read a bunch of these for the first time 
in the Gladstone graphic novel, which was number 27 in that series. So, you know, I didn't inherently appreciate it. I, I figured out, oh, these are his first stories. That's interesting. Mm. But they weren't ones that I went back to. I probably only read The Duck in the Iron Pants two or three dozen times compared to some of the stories that I read scores of times, uh, which is to say, I do, I do love these stories, but um, you know, more as an appreciation of what they say about wh where he was in his career at the time. Right, um, right. I do want to mention where these stories kind of fall as far as com the community, right? So yeah. I, I love to check them out on Index. And I'm gonna um, I'm gonna talk about them. Let's talk about them in order of lowest first. So so okay. the Victory Garden, right? Th this one clocks in pretty low. This one has a six point nine out of ten, which puts it as number thirty seven thousand um, and some hmm. out of the forty one thousand some stories. Very low for a Bark story. And, and obviously it wasn't written by, by him. In fact, I, I forgot to mention this. We don't know who wrote it. Like We don't know. We know that it was handed over to him by the editor, but we don't know who scripted it. Correct. Written by anonymous studio hack, basically, um, or, sure. or anonymous publishing hack. Like it's, it's a fine story, but it's, it's very threadbare. But that's interesting to me. That seems a little bit unfair when you consider... Um, you yeah. know, how significant of a story, but, but taken as its own story. Yeah. It's, it's not the best. Yeah. And then next, the, the next highest one is the rabbit's foot, which jumps up okay. quite a bit. So we've got a 7.1 out of 10 good for 1,744th out of all 41, some thousand. That did jump up quite a bit. Uh, just that 6.9 to 7.1, it leaped up quite a bit. Right. Um, so, and that was his first full original story. So. Exactly. Clearly, it landed much better in, in the community as as a purely Carl Barks story. Yeah. Good to know. And then um, Salesman Donald is next. That gets a 7.2 out of 10. And it's uh, it's into the top thousand. It's rank 917 out of 41. Some okay. And then we've got the Mad Chemist. That one ranks quite highly for uh, a an old one. It's 7.5 out of 10, good for 326. Ooh. I do think that one might get a little bit inflation just because of the like the, the, the ones that kind of bleed out into the pop culture, people remember them better. So I think they vote them higher. Mm -hmm. but, but I do think it's a very good old story. And, uh, and then the duck in the iron pants is the clear winner um, at sure. rank 291 out of 41,000, some um, good for 7.5 again out of 10. Hmm. I would agree with that one being probably the top story in terms of story. And, and, and I, I, I might personally, I might swap the index ratings for salesman donald and uh the mad chemist i i wasn't as crazy about the mad chemist but again you're right i think it captured the imagination of the world at that time and that's mm -hmm. that's very fair i um i i was really impressed by how good that salesman donald was i i enjoyed that one a lot i was glad to get to read that for the yeah, first time. that's i think i think my favorite of all of them today nice and and i just i love the duck in the iron pants um, oh yeah 
so much. I I think he's just you can you can really feel. He, I think he's doing what really entertained him in that no, one because no it's it's so over the top. All right. Well, well this was fun. Yeah. So much I, fun. I agree. This was great, Warren. This 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 is a lot of fun. It's it's fun to take this neat complimentary group of stories from the same era, um, get to cover them. I'm I'm not planning to cover any more of the old ones. So this this is going to be our stand-in for all of these. Thank you so much for for taking the time to appreciate these early barks. Always great to revisit these stories. Uh, I love it and uh, looking forward to our next opportunity. Awesome. I, I'd love to hear what listeners think about, um, you know, their, their own preference for these stories, or if there's one that they really think that we should have covered uh, in this early period, feel free to reach out at barksremarks at gmail.com or on the Barks Remarks Facebook page. And uh, until next time.